We started in this chapter last week talking about the early part of Matthew chapter 7 where it says, judge not lest you be judged. And we, we talked about that at length. And I mentioned that there was another message that needed to come out of chapter 7 as well. And again, the objective here, the purpose of this study is to address things that in large ways and in small ways have been taught incorrectly. And because they have been taught incorrectly, they've actually done damage within the church. I taught on Sunday morning uh, from John, 1 John chapter 4. Let's just go there for just a second. I'll begin reading with verse 1, 1 John 4 verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. If you want to know, by, at least by God's definition, how can you tell the difference between an untrue voice and a true voice? How can you know the difference? He wants us to be real clear about this. He wants us to, to very specifically know the answer to this. So it says, hereby you know the Spirit of God. This is the test. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus is come in the flesh is of God. So every spirit that confesses that Jesus is Jesus, that he has come in the flesh, that he is born of a father, that he is a son of God. Every spirit that confesses that is the spirit of God. And then he goes on and says, and every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Again, he doesn't say the Antichrist is in the world. He says that same spirit that the Antichrist will carry is already in the world. And you'll know it, because that spirit will always do something. And I asked in Sunday school, why not anti-Jesus? Why not anti-God? Why anti-Christ? Because the word Christ means anointed. It means that anyone who speaks against the anointing of Jesus, the anointing of God's son is the voice of Antichrist. And we hear this a lot. We recognize this spirit, the spirit of Antichrist. But I want us to be very careful because we have a tendency to look outside of the church to find that voice. We have a tendency to look outside the church to find that spirit of Antichrist. Satan's great trick, as we mentioned on Sunday morning, is to get us to, to accept Jesus absent the anointing. To get us to believe in Jesus, but without the, the fact that he was the anointed, the fact that he was the one who was appointed, that the anointing sets is what allowed him to function above human limitation. It was what allowed him to know who he was, that that anointing allowed him to hear the voice of God and receive the things of God. Satan's great deception is not to keep us from receiving Jesus. It's but to receive Jesus without the anointing. That's why it's anti-Christ, anti-anointing, because that's what the word Christ means. I want to tell you the place where the real damage is done by the spirit of Antichrist is not the world out there who's doing something. It is the spirit of Antichrist that exists within the church. The church that will not accept the reality of the anointing of Jesus. When did it occur? When he came up out of the water, when he was baptized, when he was anointed and recognized as the son of God. He was adopted by his father. 
He received the Holy Spirit and all of heaven was opened unto him. That was the moment that Jesus was set in the provision of God's anointing to be the Messiah. To be what he was supposed to be on this earth for the next three and a half years. That's where that occurred. Anybody who teaches against that, against the coming of the Holy Spirit, against the adoption of sons, against the the reality of heaven in our life, anybody who speaks against that is carrying that spirit of Antichrist. That's the truth. And again, that's the deception of Satan, trying to get us to accept Jesus without the fact that he's anointed, without the fact that he is the Christ, the anointed one, that he is the one who the Holy Spirit indwelt, that he is the one who was gained access to heaven so that he could actually for the next three and a half years live under the provision of that anointing. So anybody who teaches that less so that he's Jesus the Savior, or Jesus the one who died for us, but not Jesus the one who brought the Holy Spirit, the giver of that gift, and won't accept that anointing, is carrying that spirit. This is the scripture that we go back to. This is the truth. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of anti-anointing, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already exist in the world. Satan's great deception is trying to get us to accept Jesus without the anointing. We're going to read about that in this same passage. When we go back to Matthew chapter 7, there's something there. We're going to begin in uh, the verse, it's like verse 13 is where we will actually begin. But there's great confusion about those verses. The verse that begins, enter ye by the narrow gate. Great, great confusion about that passage. Because we fail to recognize and understand that it is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. What he says in that passage has to tie to everything that began in Matthew chapter 5. So when he makes statements in in, in these passages in Matthew 7, these are statements when he makes them that you have to recognize is inclusive of everything he started to say from Matthew 5.1. If he says something and he points to a a past reference, he's talking about those things he's already said starting in Matthew chapter 5. So these are summary statements. So we can't approach that inner ye into the straight gate if we don't begin with Matthew chapter 5. So I'm going to go there if you want to flip back a couple of pages. And I want to begin reading in verse 3. You know these very well. But this is the beginning of what he ultimately says in Matthew chapter 7. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manners of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. 
Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. And all this passage, that and as it continues, has to be understood as we begin to consider Matthew chapter 7. All of that applies to this teaching about the straight gate. That's the first thing that needs to be corrected. I may mention this a few times in here, but the straight gate we have allowed ourselves to believe is Jesus. That our passing into this is Jesus. But Jesus is very specific here. He's saying that life that I'm talking about that is straight is the life that I have just described in all these other passages. Beginning with Matthew chapter 5, he's saying, I'm drawing you a picture of the straight gate. It is not a person because Jesus he tells us, I'm the sheep gate. So we have this natural tendency to believe what he's talking about here is himself. But he, he's not, I, I can assure you, what he's talking about in this narrow gate is he's saying, I've taught you all these things. I, I, you know, part of the narrow gate is, is seeking and hungering after righteousness so that you can be filled. That's part of the gate. All these things that I've just told you, that's part of the gate. And that's what he's trying to get us to understand as we begin to approach this. So if we don't understand it, we'll call the straight gate Jesus, but rather knowing that he is referring to all that he has just taught helps us to understand that we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven casually. He's saying what creates the narrow gate, the straight gate, is all that I've just taught you. Everything I've just taught you about being filled with the Holy Spirit, about this being filled, all of that is in this narrow gate. Let's just read those first two verses in Matthew chapter 7. Enter ye at the straight gate. This is beginning with verse 13. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life and few there be that find it. Again, he's not talking about becoming a Christian. What he's actually talking about is because we started this study in the book of Matthew saying, and I shared with you, as long as I've studied the book of Matthew, I have never found a single verse that talks to us about how to become a Christian. Everything here is about the Christian life. It's about life inside the kingdom. So we begin to recognize here that the first thing that we read as we, as we get in this passage is telling us that this is only possible if you are what he's describing. That is the first correction for me, is that he's not speaking of himself. He's speaking of what he has just described. So when you start reading in Matthew 5 and you begin to see all these things about turning the other cheek and all the stuff that's in Matthew chapter 6 and, and loving your neighbor and all that kind of stuff, he's saying that's the life, not to become a disciple, but this is the calling of disciples. This is you being willing not to be saved. This is you as a saved person being willing to step into the fullness of all that God has planned. The life of the believer. This is the uniqueness of this passage and, and why it is, needs a little bit of correction. The life that enters in by the straight gate is a life that has already accepted and received salvation by the blood of Jesus. That the life begins in the spirit should from all points continue in the spirit. This is the message. 
everything he's described in Matthew chapter 5 on, up to this point, has been a life being described by what the reality of the Holy Spirit does within the life that you and I live. I'm not able. That's why it starts. Blessed are those who seek after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Being the salt of the earth is only possible because we're filled. Being the light of the world is only possible because we're filled, because of the reality of the Holy Spirit. And any life that begins and goes through this gate by the reality of the Spirit, he's saying the life after it, because of the Spirit's involvement in this moment to bring you to this point, then this is what should happen, is it should create a life that looks just like it afterward. I use this passage, and some of you have been in my office to hear this, you use this passage to talk about the evidence of salvation. Because if you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, if you have been brought to that point by the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit has been real in your life because you, have, because you are saved, that Holy Spirit has now taught you about the life that is required to enter in so that you can enter in that straight gate and live on that narrow way. Let me read this again. It may be simpler if I just read what I've written. The life that enters in by the straight gate that Jesus is referring to is a life that has already accepted and received salvation by the blood of Jesus. So this is not talking about that salvation experience. But it is saying very specifically that life that began by the reality of the Holy Spirit. It took the Holy Spirit to bring us to salvation. That same Holy Spirit should be bringing us into the existing life of a disciple by a very narrow gate. And he, again, for the last three chapters, has told us what that narrow life looks like. We don't have to read very much to recognize within those, the instructions of these chapters, Jesus, in, beginning with Matthew 5, is beginning <laughs> to paint the reality for the believer of a very narrow way. We don't get to do what, our, what every, just anything our heart wants to do. We are people who are very dedicated, very committed, whose lives are the very demonstration of the fact that, that it took the Holy Spirit to save us. And now the Holy Spirit has become evident in my story. If I'm going to enter into the fullness of the Christian life, I have to invite the Holy Spirit into the moment because that's the consistency of this message. The very dynamic says, uh, speaks of consistency. So we have to first acknowledge in trying to gain a more full understanding of this passage that it is Jesus himself that tells us that the way is narrow. He's not saying that you can enter in by any casual approach that you want to enter into the fullness of what God has intended. So I looked up this word because to me it was a picture of this word consecration, the word consecrated. I don't know if I was totally ready for the answer when I looked up the word consecration. If anybody has a Bible that's got notes in it, I kind of wonder what the Bible says about that. But it is a word only used in the Old Testament. It's never used in the New Testament. It's a Hebrew word that talks about the relationship between God and his people. Already chosen, but about the life that happens between them. The life of the children of God in relationship to their father. And the word that was used 52 times, I think, in the Old Testament was the word consecrate. But it speaks of something that, again, I wasn't real sure. I, didn't, I never knew that it meant. Here's the definition of the word consecrate. It means to destroy, to utterly destroy, completely destroy, or dedicate for destruction, or exterminate. That was a bit of a surprise. That what 
in the Old Testament, when we talk about the relationship between God and his children, the word consecrate was so consistently used and it means to destroy or to exterminate. So it, it, when I kind of would step back away from that and, and realize what we were being told, that the word means to dedicate for destruction or to utterly destroy, that old hymn says, consecrate me now to thy service, Lord. It's saying, God, destroy me for thy service. Why is that necessary? We have to die. We have to get out of the way for those things of him to actually be produced. Because if there's any of me that's left, that part trying to coexist and live when Christ determined to live in me and through me, then it sets up the mess that most of our Christian lives end up being. I mean, it was not a casual word. So when we begin to understand what he says, enter in through this narrow gate, he's talking about living a consecrated life, not casual. The first, we need to get that out of our mind that anything about entering into the life of, that God has intended for us to live will not be a casual life. It will be a life of sacrifice. It will be a life of submission. So when we come to this picture of Jesus establishing this teaching of the straight gate, he's saying, destroy me that the spirit which saved me can now live in me that I may be the evidence of him and not me. And we sing the old hymn, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. I surrender all. You want to enter into the straight gate? You go back and you read, beginning with Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount when he's saying this in fullness, in context. He's saying everything I've just taught you is designed to tell you how narrow this gate is. If you think you can enter into the reality of God casually, you are grievously mistaken. And in any pastor, any teacher, any Christian who's sharing, who doesn't tell someone to count the cost, realize what the step that you're taking. Remember when Ananias and Sapphira came in, you know, Ananias came in first and told this lie and said, we've sold all this property and here's the proceeds, but they held some back for themselves. And Peter asked him, you know, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? And Ananias falls over dead and the men come and get him. They take him out and bury him. And three hours later, Sapphira comes in expecting to get the ovation because of what she and her husband have done. And Peter asked her the same question. Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? She gave an answer. She, was, she fell dead. They took her out and buried her by her husband. And the next verse says, and very few dared join themselves to that early church. Why not? Pretty serious. We have taught so long that kind of anything goes once you're saved, that grace is covering everything, that his grace is covering all that, that I, I'm doing and all that I have done. And the teaching is no. That Holy Spirit that created the, the means by which you could enter into this life is the same Holy Spirit that is going to guide you. And you're not going to be able to casually function outside of the will of the Holy Spirit. Your desires are, or your nature is going to be his nature. At least that's what the book of Peter tells us. We are partakers of his divine nature. Because if this isn't the case, then Jesus himself living this consecrated life, he became nothing so that he could become the very evidence of his father. If we don't die and if we don't walk according to this means by which he said enter in, we will not put him on display in the world. We will put ourselves on display. That's why most churches are created in our image and not his. 
Because we make choices and we make decisions out of our mind and out of our heart and out of our desires and what makes us comfortable and, how, and, and what we want to put on display and how we want church to look. And so we have been very busy creating church in our own image. And I'm, I'm con- constantly puzzled how Christian people who begin to hear and understand the truth, that there's not this awakening within the church as this truth begins to be realized. Because when you understand that this is talking about a very narrow life, and I'm not talking about bound up, I'm not talking in chains, I'm not even talking about less fun than any other life. When we begin to understand this life, it will be the most joyful life we could possibly live because it's the reality of the Holy Spirit. What can make us more joyful? You know, Parker was telling us, he mentioned this briefly in staff meeting, but he was telling, I think Shorty and Danny and I and somebody else was in the kitchen with us earlier in the week about a guy that he knows from Nacogdoches who goes to Fredonia Hills where Kendall is the minister, who is selling everything he has, everything, and moving to Haiti. Cattle, 500-acre ranch, house, cars, every toy that you could possibly want or mention that he has, all of it's gone. Keeping nothing. Why? Because when you begin to hear the call of God and you begin to understand the voice of God and when he moves, there's no fear in leaving that stuff behind. There's only anticipation and joy of what he set before you. You cannot do that if you don't understand this narrow gate, this straight gate. It won't make any sense. And he says it again, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there be that go in thereat because straight is the gate, narrow is the way which leads into life and few there be that find it. Again, this passage helps us to understand that he is teaching and telling us about life that recognizes the discipline of the Christian life that truly brings freedom along with sacrifice. The word life here in that passage, if we hold true to the perspective of Matthew, is not talking about eternal life, it's talking about millennial life. That's what he's talking about in the book of Matthew. So when he's mentioning life, he's talking about the life that God has established for us that we should understand both here and afterwards in the millennial reign. This is the life he's talking about. The word life, again, if we hold true to it, is about that. The broad nature of this way is not sin as we would, as believers, express it. We have a tendency to believe that when we talk about this broad way that leads to destruction, we're talking about sin in our life. And I guess in the, in the broadest sense, that will always be true because when we understand that which is not of faith is sin, then we have to roll everything into that category. But we have a tendency to, to be talking about sin. Remember the context of this. He's talking about accessing the Christian life, about a life of a disciple. Again, we, that's why we have to hold it in context of the Sermon on the Mount because he's not suddenly talking about this sin that is running rampant within the world. That's not what he's talking about. That's not the broad way. He's talking about the broad way inside the church. He's talking about the broad way that's being expressed within the kingdom. This is pulpits and and Sunday school classes being filled by men and women who are expressing something that is absolutely not true. That's the way that's leading to destruction. It's not the world's sin out here. Again, the world's functioning perfectly well. He's talking about after people are saved, and not being able to understand this narrow way because they don't understand what the Christian life is really all about and about the life in the Spirit, about accepting Jesus without the anointing. 
That we, we, yes, we say that we're saved, but that broad way is not what the world's doing. That broad way has now become the expression of the church, what's being perpetuated inside the kingdom. That's the broad way he's talking about. That ought to alarm us. That ought to catch our attention. Because if we're out there telling people about Jesus and we're not willing to teach them about the anointing of Jesus and the reality of the Holy Spirit and stay there with them to tell them this longer story. We've taught them about Jesus who is Savior, but not Jesus who is the Christ, the anointed. He's not saying something casual here. This isn't a simple illustration. He's saying that hope, when we understand the Holy Spirit brought us in and the Holy Spirit is, is, is what allows us to see this gate, our life will become the evidence of the Holy Spirit and not us. Because I'm consecrated, I had to die in this process so that he could live in this process so that my life suddenly becomes the evidence of him. As Jesus said very clearly, you want to see the Father, you look at me. Because we're one. You're not going to do that by as a Christian living on this broad way. But again, I'm not talking about those who are just making bad choices as Christians. I'm talking about what's being perpetuated from the pulpit. But we can somehow be a church without God. That we can be a church without the Holy Spirit. We're trying to be a church with Jesus with no Holy Spirit. What do we call that according to John chapter 4? That's the spirit of anti-anointing. This is serious. I mean, he's not, he's not giving a, a casual end and just a pep talk now at the, end of, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is very serious. It is the teaching within the church that expands beyond the true way which is and must always be the Holy Spirit. There is no other way. Let's pick it up again in verse 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father. And how are you going to know the will? By the Holy Spirit. Those who do the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in, in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will confess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Everything in this passage is talking about believers. There's not a reference in this to someone who's lost. And we need to be very careful that we understand here that the people who are wolves but dressed as sheep clothes, that's not a lost person. This is someone who has this spirit of the wolf but dressed himself in a sheep's clothes. Again, the magnitude of this should create an, an awareness and a commitment in us that I will be the person that Jesus is talking about. I will discover this narrow way, this straight gate. One of the ways you know the difference between the true prophet and the false one, and it goes back to John, 1 John chapter 4, but just in very simple words. The Sermon on the Mount was spoken by Jesus, not a mystery. The words of a false prophet are always spoken by themselves and to their own end. That's the truth of a false prophet. A false prophet will always be placing themselves in the story, elevating themselves in the story, and, and will usually work to justify their own ends. So when it appears, the sheepskins appear, 
They are those people that the, that the Lord says are wolves who will devour. Their fruit will be recognized because they are produced out of their own nature. So listen to this list of things that, that would cause us to function out of our own nature. Somebody, especially in the pulpit, or even, I'll say this generally as a believer, but I, I feel the heaviness of it on pastors and teachers who desire to be popular or accepted. If you preach or teach to that end, you are a wolf in sheep's clothing. Mm-hmm. When you desire to be promoted and advanced from church to church, I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing. That is self-interest. Remember that false prophet will always speak of themselves and to their own end. Desires to be knowledgeable without wisdom. Desires to be comfortable instead of dealing in the truth. Desires to sell for gain that which, has, which God has freely given. I have a real pet peeve. I get suggestions often of a book that I need to read or someone that I need to listen to. Something groundbreaking. Something that is so revolutionary and you need to get it because it explains the Old Testament, it explains the code. Did it, I mean, it's just on and on. And so I, I go to YouTube, the one, to the links that they recommend, and I'm listening to this guy and he's tickling their ears with this much information and saying, but if you want the rest of this, you need to buy the book. If God has given you something that is that dynamic, speak it right now so I can hear it. Don't couch it in anything. Let me have it. And don't become the prostitute that you have become selling that which God has given if he truly gave it for your gain that is unreasonable. If, if, if I've got something that I need to warn you about, I'm not going to come in here and say, well, I've written it down. Go read it. I'm going to shout it at you and to you as fast and quickly as I can if it's really that urgent. I had one of these last fall and it's like this is groundbreaking stuff and he's unlocked some of the codes in the Old Testament and you need to listen to it because it tells what's fixing to happen within the world and you need to, you, you need to, you need to read it. And I turned over there and I started listening. Can't, I can't go 15 minutes. I can't listen to him. Everything is about, well, this is how I discovered this. This is where this came from. This, I mean, it, promoting himself and at the end of the day saying, you need to read this book. And you'll get all of it if you'll just read this book. Can't stand it. If you know something that is that profound that I desperately need to know, do not ask me to read it. Speak it to me right now so that I can begin to receive what you're saying. That is a wolf who's been strapped over with the sheep's clothes. Someone who desires excitement over substance. That is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And, I, and, and the list could go much, much longer. We have exchanged personality for character but equally treacherous is that we've accepted boredom no result no supernatural power and caused it to become acceptable that is a wolf in sheep's clothing this isn't this isn't light for the light weight this is this is serious stuff so we must understand that this is not a question of fruit or no fruit that's not what he's talking about both truth and deception form fruit, will produce fruit. However, the fruit of a man alone with, uh, will create a far different character in the lives of the people that he's speaking to. If I'm doing this right, if I'm speaking week after week under an anointing, it should be creating a dynamic impact in, in who you are, in your character. If I'm doing this right, it will create that. 
If I'm trying to sell you something, it will get you to come back, but we'll see lives unchanged year after year after year under that kind of teaching because it's not forming a dynamically different character as a result of the truth that God is revealing. If I'm doing this right, it should be moving people's hearts and their identity into the understanding of God, and it should deepen the reality of their character. The things that once were important should become less important, and the things of God should be constantly becoming more. If I am under the anointing of God week by week to stand in this pulpit or to teach you, it should be changing your character. That ought to be clear. The the last couple of verses of that again. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in the name have cast out devils. And in the name done many wonderful works. And then, then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. It is here that we first recognize, because Jesus says it. I don't know if he meant to say it. I don't think he probably made a mistake. But when he says, many will say to me in that day, what did he just tell us? I'm going to be the one who's at the Bema seat. The one you're going to stand in front of to give this account of the Christian life is me. Not anyone else. The one that you're going to answer to is me. Fascinating to me that he sat with this group of people. And he's told them everything he's told them since Matthew chapter 5, because this is one message. And he says, I'm going to be the one who sits in that day to see how well you have understood what I've just taught you. How well did you receive this reality of, of, of all that I've just spoken? I'm going to be the one who sits there. So this is the first time we actually get that glimpse. We know it from 2 Corinthians 5, 8, 9, and 10. We know it from 1 Corinthians 3 beginning with about verse 8 to verse 16. Verse 22 is is focused largely on gifts that are given rather than the reality of gifts that are made functional by the Holy Spirit. Look at that one again where it says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Use that gift for you and, and have not cast out devils for you. And in thy name doth many wonderful works. All saying that look at look at the gifts that we have and look how we've used them. Every one of our spiritual gifts have to be made functional by the Holy Spirit. He won't take the gift away from us. I I, I watch this in people's Christians, people's life all the time, because the gift that God gave them is using, is causing hurt because it's not being guided by the Holy Spirit. That gift which God gave us has to be made functional, properly functional by the reality of the Holy Spirit, or it will be misguided. The Holy Spirit coming upon us and filling us gives us the, the divine unction and purpose of our life. This is the message that he's trying to display. And he says this, and back in, the, in these verses, and few there be that find it. We get very uh, attached to the word few. We kind of think in terms of numbers and say, few there will be, broad and, and few. And so we focus on this few, and that's not what he was trying to say. What's the key word in that, in that verse, in the part that I just read you? And few there be that find it. What's the key word? Find. You see, this life has got to be found. Have to be looking. We have to be searching for this life. Again, he's talking about the fact that we have approached this casually. I, again, I only can tell one story. But the biggest part of my life, I didn't even know I was on a journey. But when I turned about 30, and I, I wish I could be more specific as to when this happened, but I know that it was about the time right before I went 
as interim pastor at Ropes because it happened in this church. I picked up a book and it began to it began to just profoundly change me. And the promise that God made me was that if, if you'll take everything you believe and you'll kick down the parentheses that create both ends of it. He said, I'll never quit teaching you. I will never stop expanding this understanding. So I teach out of an ever expanding promise that you will never come to the end of all that I want you to know. But I had to be the one who kicked down the parentheses. He would not do it. And I can tell with great promise and great assurity that he has never failed on that promise. I am as mystified at some of the things he teaches me, even in this passage. As I was studying this again, so mystified of a layer of stuff that is in there that I had missed. That this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And everything he's talking about is what preceded it in the conversation. That is how you, if you want to understand and define that straight gate, that narrow life, look within those passages and you'll find the reality of what he was talking about. Because he was, he was talking very specifically about things he had just mentioned. And the life that will, that will lead to destruction is a life that does not look like these passages. Think of some of the things that are spoken in those, in those passages. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's this life he's calling us to. Very, very specific instruction. And he says, that is that straight gate. And it will by its nature produce a narrow way. Because you're not going to get, you're not going to get grapes off of a thistle tree. We'll know this difference by the fruit that's being produced out of each life. So when we start looking at the life, we go back and say, well, did, you, did we ever receive the Holy Spirit that makes this life possible? And it causes us to go back one more. Was I ever saved? This should bring us to a very specific confrontation with ourselves and about the truth of ourselves. That's why we just got through looking at that the Holy Spirit is the only one who can create a true assessment of me. If, if my life out here is not being described in this passage, and then it tells me something about this straight gate. If, if my way's not narrow, if it's not producing a life that looks like God himself, then it should cause me to ask, did I come through the straight gate? Have I received the Holy Spirit that makes this life possible? If the answer to that is no, the question should be, well, was I ever saved? When someone comes to my office and I ask them, you know, when it comes to this point of deliverance, and I had one of these on Saturday morning. And it was one of the, some of the most exciting stuff I get to do in my life. But before I will ever pray with somebody and say, are you ready for your life to be dramatically and radically changed? There are four questions that I ask. Are you willing to separate yourself in this from, from everything in your future from your past? Are you willing to jettison your past so that you can live in your future? The answer has got to be an immediate yes. Do you recognize and you do, do you accept that God has the power in this moment to, to do that which you're fixing to ask him to do? I can't remember what the third one is, but I know the fourth one. Will you in this moment receive the Holy Spirit? Because there's no chance for you to live this life after if you don't receive the Holy Spirit in this moment. And the answer to every one of those four questions has got to be an immediate yes. Because if they're hesitation, they're not ready. Because you're not going to be able to enter into this gate and be free that God wants to, the freedom he wants to bring you if you're not willing to say in this moment, I separate myself forever from that life that has so encumbered me. The one that has so broken my heart. The one that's given me such a false identity. 
I have to be willing to jettison that life so that I can live in the fullness of the one in front of me. And if you can't say yes, if you're going to in any way, form or fashion, continue to identify yourself with that old life, you're not ready to be free. Remember, everybody who came to Jesus, whether they were lame or leprous or whatever, walked away 100% living now as if that former life had never existed. Being able to do what Melissa did, stand in that pulpit and tell of a story of victory and tell of a life that is out in front of her as if that, that life had never even existed. She gets to tell it as history, as testimony that might set somebody else free. But she doesn't own that as her life anymore because from that moment of freedom, this is her life. We all have to be willing to jettison the old to step into the new. And that last question, are you willing and are you ready in this moment to receive the Holy Spirit? Because if they can't say yes, they're not ready. That would be like sweeping the house clean and leaving it empty so that the spirits come back seven times worse. If you're not willing to fill that house with the Holy Spirit, you're not ready to be delivered. Those questions are, are paramount because it's saying I'm ready not only for this moment, but I'm ready for the moments yet to come. This one got me a little bit tonight. This one was, this one was different than I expected. I thought I understood this passage and I began to study it again. And boy, what the Lord began to open up to me, even in, even in error that I've taught since I've been here out of this passage, the Lord brought such conviction and said, I'm glad you're looking again. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend together, for this time we can spend in your word and for the truth that you reveal. We're just, uh, I am profoundly mystified over and over as you continue to teach. But you're honoring a promise that you made, and I thank you for it. As long as you find us willing, you will teach us forever. Teach us beyond what we can imagine. Bring truth that we just couldn't even a few months ago or a year ago even comprehended. But you began to speak it now, and we're grateful to you that you let us hear it in a way that, that we can receive it, in a way that will allow us to grow and be forever changed. We thank you, Lord, because you're the only one who can do it. In Jesus' name, amen.